First Fuel, a podcast on the role of energy efficiency, energy management and demand response in the energy transition taking place in Germany and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and I'm joining you live from Berlin with two fantastic guests. I've got Frankie Muscovich, Director National Policy at the Property Council of Australia. Uh, welcome, Frankie, and congratulations on the new gig. Guten Tag. <laughs> Good to be with you. And, uh, of course, anyone that's been following our exploits on uh, LinkedIn, on, on the video updates that we've been rolling out on a daily basis while we've been here in Berlin, won't be surprised that my other guest is, of course, Carlos Flores, uh, Director of the National Australian Build Environment Rating System. Welcome, Carlos. Very excited to be here. After a long, long, exhausting week of full of interesting things. My brain is about to explode, so very excited to be here. Well, yes, you uh, find us, uh, dear listeners, kind of broken, (laughs) 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 but with the amount of information that has been inserted into our brain uh, after an incredible week in Berlin, I I should probably provide some some context. Uh, I have been leading a delegation of Australian energy efficiency experts uh, to Germany. We've been doing uh, uh, four days of uh, dedicated learning on the topic of building energy efficiency, both residential and commercial buildings. So we've had delegates um, from think tanks, from CRCs, from industry associations, from from government, um, really an incredible group of people that are coming, oh, from financiers uh, as well, I should say, uh, incredible group of people who have a whole bunch of different lenses uh, into this topic. And we've been um, doing a deep dive uh, on um, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of the things that are happening on energy efficiency policy in Germany, because we've got this bilateral relationship, right? So there's an energy working group. Um, one of the subgroups is on energy efficiency. Um, and we've been learning from each other, finding out ways we can collaborate. And um, this is kind of like the latest iteration of, of that effort. Um, so it's been incredible, right? Like, Overall, at a high level, Frankie, um, what what is your big takeouts from the trip? I think it confirmed a couple of things for me uh, that we're really lagging behind on residential energy efficiency and there's so much work to do and lots of inspiration to take from Germany. But it also validated that we're leading on commercial buildings energy efficiency. Um, it's one thing to know that uh, your industry is topping global benchmarks on, you know, on a piece of paper or on a mm, rating mm. index, and it's another thing to see the assets in real life and, and find out that actually we're doing some really innovative things in Australia, and and not just in the building space, but also, uh, but we have cheap renewables. And actually, it really just hit home for me this week what that means in terms of our role over the next decade. Like we're going to go from having just over. 20% renewables to maybe almost 90% renewables. And in that time, there's a significant transition to be made, not just for the energy grid, but for buildings and how buildings interact with the grid. And I think at the commercial end of the market, we're going to be in a position to show the world and to teach them how we do it. Yeah, 100%. Carlos and I were in, in Brussels last week as well, and it sort of felt a little bit bit like being the, the ghosts of Christmas future, like because we are ahead of the curve in terms of the decarbonisation of our electricity grid um, and we do have you know to take your point frankie around commercial buildings we have a lot of expertise in, in industry around this broad topic of energy efficiency energy management that is uh, being brought to bear on the uh, 
uh, on the task of making sure load is being matched with supply, that we've got that man- management of supply and demand. Absolutely. I think one of the main takeaways for me this week was that government leadership really matters. And I think that's a surprise to anybody. But you can really see it when you go to another country and you see what is a country like Germany leading on? Where are they leading? You can see the government fingerprints everywhere. Hmm. They are leading residential energy efficiency. And it's not an, an accident. They've been investing an enormous amount of money and effort and policy for decades. Um, and it's, so it's a lot of surprise that they're running laps around the average sustainability of an Australian home. It's because it's a very long, sustained effort that is only increasing. And you can really see that. And we might actually dive into that a little bit. But you also see it in areas like renewable energy you see in areas like sustainable finance they are going all in and you can see direct government involvement in that so to me one of the big takeaways from this is that you know that leadership is really important that the kind of challenges that we're trying to tackle are very big the kind of challenges that you need a concerted effort a lot of people pushing in the same direction mm. and that is very difficult to do without real leadership and ambitious policy and to me Germany is a great example of several areas on how you can unlock that. How can you use government, how can you use policy to really you know, unlock energy savings across the economy? So one really tangible example of that that I think the three of us have all been very excited about is kind of target setting and the importance of target setting both at an economy-wide level but also sectoral targets. So, uh, you know, Germany uh, has has legislated climate change targets in terms of ambition for our, for our uh, audience back in Australia. Um, they're targeting a, a net zero by 2045, which we learnt today was the result of a court case. <laughs> Which I, none of us knew clearly before today. We 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 got the explanation from the policymakers uh, earlier in the week that uh, Germany had gone more ambitious than the EU and and is targeting like net zero or carbon neutral by 2045, but didn't tell us that that was the result of a court case from an activist group that challenged the constitution and Germany's responsibility mm. uh, to to go further. Uh, and, and, and the activists won that court case. Mm. And so what happened was a, a mad scramble <laughs> over the next three months to update their targets. And, uh, and not only did we see a more ambitious uh, 2045 target to reach net zero, but we also saw uh, an, like the, the requirement for annual legislated targets uh, out to 2030 and also a target for 2040. But I, I think the, the innovation or the takeout, I think, for, for all of us, right, was to, to see what behaviour it, it drives mm. with policymakers when you, when you need to report every year against legislated uh, targets in by sector. And, and I really think we haven't thought about that in a little while in, in an Australian context. We've been really busy arguing over the, the nationwide target and we haven't been talking about um, so much the merits of legislated targets at a sector level. Yeah, 100%. And it's like when we talked to the policymakers and we mainly were talking to buildings people but we, we had the opportunity to talk to some policymakers in the industrial space today they felt a great sense of responsibility because they had a very clear task right? It wasn't just like they're making some amorphous com- contribution to this national emissions reduction effort they, there is an expectation that they will reduce emissions by X amount not by 2025 or by 2030 but by this much this year which focuses the mind, right, Carlos? You're 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 sort of someone that contributes to, to policy in an Australian context. How powerful would that be if we were to adopt that that approach in Australia? I think it's incredibly powerful, and 
it's, it's such an innovation in policy making. I mean, we do have a 43% target in Australia. It's meant to be legislated in the next little while. I think it's a, that's great step forward, I think, for, for our country. Uh, so Germany has a more ambitious target, so 65%. It's slightly different year baseline, but it is a very one of the most ambitious targets. And right away, that alone, you can see the urgency that a really ambitious target that you don't know if you're going to be able to achieve it. You have to come up with innovations all the time. So you can see that alone drives uh, a lot of change in the policymaking process. But the fact that they're breaking that down into sectors, what is how much is energy efficiency going to do for us this year in three years and by 2030? Uh, and so there's a specific target for buildings to reduce you know, a certain amount of energy consumption by 2030. Um, and that changes everything. It changes the way you think. It's not that they worked out that their current policies are going to lead them to a 15% reduction by 2030. They just want, we need to get to 15% if we're going to get you know, to net zero by 2045. That's a necessary step. We don't know how we're going to do that. So let's just work it out year on year and try things. And I do think that, and they have that for electric vehicles and for renewables and for greening, uh, you know, not just the electricity grid, but for hydrogen and every single aspect of sustainability they have a target often legislated, which means that the amount of thinking and iteration and measurement on policymaking is very, very different than anything I've seen either at the state level or the Australian government level. And I do think it's something that we should reflect on and, and potentially bring a lot more of that into our policymaking. I find it a fascinating concept and, and a lot to learn from. Oh, one really interesting aspect of the conversation about targets today um, with our friends at BMWK was was when we asked them whether they had different curves or trajectories mm. by sector, um, they said they didn't really, like that they'd mostly just plotted a yep. linear drop um, in accordance with those uh, emissions reduction requirements across the economy, which is interesting. Um, the reason for that, I think, was that they said basically it was a mad scramble after mm-hmm, this court mm-hmm. case and there wasn't a huge amount of time or work in terms of, you know, the detailed kind of modelling work that we come to expect in Australia mm-hmm. um, to look at, oh, okay, well, what trajectory would the building sector have versus the industrial sector versus mm. agriculture? Uh, they're, they're pretty linear. And I think that's, that's um, perhaps something we should take back with us to think about whether that's fit for purpose in Australia. Uh, a lot of us um, in the building space often remark that buildings have the technology to go to net zero today and so there's a strong argument and indeed it's supported in the IPCC report Mm -hmm. in the IEA net zero um, report as well that buildings should go faster Mm. and that's not really represented in Germany's um, target system yet Um, but suffice to say I mean they they have very ambitious targets and it's clearly driving action uh, across the economy and you can see it in the in the emissions reductions they've achieved already when you go and look at what's happening overseas it's incredibly valuable being here on the ground and having it being able to talk to the um, policy makers not just see you know a trajectory in a pdf from a foreign government actually talk to the the policy makers and the technical experts and and understand the thought process that they work through because it allows you to say well that's inspiration but actually you know, we can take that and we can build on it and potentially do it better. And I agree with you, Frankie. One of the ways we can do it better is to think uh, about, yes, sectoral pathways, yes, cross-cutting goals because there's cross-cutting issues like energy efficiency or hydrogen that we need to think about in a holistic way, which is not, it's not just about what's going on in every sector. But to the degree that we are doing sectoral goals, where are the opportunities for sectors to move quicker 
to decarbonise quicker, um, and where and and that creates headroom for some of the other sectors which we know are harder to debate that will need more time. Um, I am I'm, I'm very cautious about this you know this linear path for every sector of the economy because the idea that every sector in the economy is going to fall over the line in you know December 31, 2049, like that's just not reality. And I also think it was, uh, I guess it validated that Australia is no different from Germany in that when we asked them why they didn't have different trajectories mm. for different sectors, apart from the we didn't have time to do that when we set them uh, reply, they also said, well, that's politically contentious. Yep. So, you know, uh, we, we would have industries banging on our door saying, why should we move first? That's no different to the conversation that happens in Australia. So I think it, it highlights the need to do that sensitively mm. and to also think about not just the role of regulation in driving those emissions reductions, but incentives as well, which have played a key part um, in the environment in, in, in Germany. Completely agree that there's probably a, a, an iteration to be done on the way that the targets were set in Germany that we could learn from. Uh, but the fact that you have targets, and I, I don't know if you actually picked this up in, in some of the meetings with, um, uh, with uh, public servants here in Germany, but uh, it was very interesting to see uh, what it means to have a target for your sector. So mm. I work with uh, a lot of states and a lot of in the Commonwealth government, and also I'm surrounded by colleagues that work not in buildings in other areas. And and you often see governments speaking winners and losers. You know, it's a government very interested in solar, and then you see this massive solar program for a few years, and another government very interested in electric vehicles, and you see you know a lot of money going to that. Uh, but often the sectors that are not favored at that point in time. Mm. You see a lot of public servants kind of working on business as usual uh, in those sectors, not really contributing yeah. as much as they could yeah. for those years just because of circumstantial reasons. Um, whereas uh, having a target in Germany for every sector means that all public servants in all sectors have to think about better ways of doing their work and more innovative ways of doing that. And I even got a sense of competition that there were some people saying, you know, buildings that didn't achieve your targets. Why are you not achieving your targets? We achieve our targets. What are you doing? And I think that is a really healthy thing to happen. Whereas in Australia, if we don't have that, if buildings don't have an energy efficiency target by 2030, it kind of gets forgotten. It becomes a 0% reduction target by, by default. And I found that very valuable that mm. we're looking at, they have a lot of transparency on what sectors are actually really contributing very quickly to those 2030 targets and what are the sectors that are not as much and that maybe we should put a lot more attention and, and come up with new ideas. I, I just really love that. I believe they haven't done this yet, but they're talking about legislating an energy efficiency target yep. here in Germany. So not just having sectoral targets, but those targets for cross-cutting measures like energy efficiency. And you can really start to see why those are necessary when you talk to people here because, you know, there is an energy crisis around the mm -hmm. world. There's one at home. Um, there's clearly one here uh, because of what's happening in Ukraine and the imperative to get off Russian gas. And the, and the public servants here, even though they've had such a strong focus on energy efficiency for decades, tell us that sometimes energy efficiency gets cast aside because mm. we're having all these supply side um, issues. <laughs> like, sound familiar? Um, so, so they were really keen um, to make sure that they had a target enshrined in legislation that they could keep coming back to that would continue to drive policymakers to implement the sorts of policies that would reduce emissions through energy efficiency. So I'm really taking that um, back on board home because it's very relevant for us in the Australian context. Yeah, 100%. I mean, 
Germany has played no small part in driving an efficiency-first principle. You've made this point a number of times this week. It's it's your point, not mine, but I'll, I'll bring it in, which is that the, their, Germany has a very different baseline <laughs> in terms of their expectations about energy efficiency being given given its uh, proper place in policy making. Like it's just more a part of the culture, and and they would like to see it elevated in, even further. But you know, uh, Germany's energy efficiency not getting very much of attention is like billions of dollars of government money being flowing into the energy efficiency sector, right? Yeah. Yeah, twenty billion a year for one for one energy efficiency program in buildings only. You know, just not quite cutting it for for our German policymaker friends. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Australians in the room had their either their jaws on the floor, or their eyes watering um, at the prospect of of such funding levels. And given that you brought up the $20 billion a year of investment on only energy efficiency in buildings, right? Um, I think one thing to reflect on that is beyond energy efficiency, beyond any one sector, just the scale of the ambition in Germany is tremendous. I mean, $20 $20 billion. I know that Germany is three times the size of Australia, Mm. but $20 billion compared in a single year, compared to that to the Climate Solutions Fund, which is the largest initiative we've ever created. $2 $2 billion spread over multiple years to hit many different sectors. Um, it's really quite astounding uh, to see Germany investing so much money and time and effort and so many policymakers working in, on, across so many areas. It's um, is very eye-opening to, to see. And it kind of tells us that there are a lot of areas where we just need to go not a little bit, not a 10% harder. We just need to go a lot harder and a lot more ambitious in the way we are doing policy in Australia. I think we would all perhaps agree that um, the inspiration we got from funding programs like those rolled out by KFW is a really significant inspiration for Australia, but that we, I don't think, would would photocopy it and take it back home. So, I mean, that amount of money is is staggering. Uh, but even the policymakers here suggested that some of that funding had been misdirected uh, in the last few years, focused on new builds. Like, should we get into that a bit? Yeah, so let's let's back up a bit and because that's almost the, the next big theme of our week, which is unpacking you know, what has been happening in German policy around energy efficiency in buildings and specifically government incentives around that. And so KFW Bank, for those that haven't come come across it before, is the bank that was set up post-World War II to reconstruct Germany. So it's had lots of jobs, just rebuilding Germany um, post-World War II was its it was its first job but over time they've maintained that institution and they've deployed it in different ways it's got lots of different jobs the one that we're obviously interested in is the the job it was given in 2006 to start to drive energy performance improvements in the building space and they do that um, through a mix of preferential finance and grants right Um, and there it's available to uh, both new build and existing build um, and those uh, uh, preferential finance and the grants get deployed through retail banks. So the KFW doesn't have direct relationships with German householders or, or German building owners in the commercial building space. It's all happening through the retail banks. Those They hold the relationships. Importantly, um, the reference point for KFW funding is the, the current standard in, the, in their national construction code, and effectively you get a better deal in terms of grants and, and finance 
finance um, for energy efficiency upgrades that Im- improve a building's performance over and above the expectation, the minimum expectations in the National Construction Code. And as we sort of intimated, there is a lot of money going through the KFW to, um, to German building owners, um, both in the residential and the commercial sector. And uh, I guess the, the robustness of the program is underpinned both by you know, a really good um, a rating system that, that is a performance-based rating that looks at um, you know, what the actual performance of a building is post an upgrade, sort of sets a baseline and then sees what the improvement is and that gets fed back to the bank so they know that their money has actually resulted in, in, a, in a significant improvement. But also the energy efficiency expert that acts as the concierge through the entire process. So they, they support the, the building owner, whether it's in the residential or commercial sector, to, uh, uh, to uh, identify the appropriate upgrades. And then they, they work through the whole process. They're the key con- point of contact with the bank. And then in the, in the end of the process, they help with the verification and they feed that back to the bank. Sorry for the data dump. That's all important information for the conversation we've just had because I think that um, we've known that in Australia at a high level. That's how KFW worked. What I kind of want to throw to you, Frank, is what did you learn by not just talking to KFW this week, but also talking to pretty much every single person over the whole week that we talked to? Because KFW came up again and again and again. It was referenced repeatedly through the entire week. Yeah. Every single site visit we did uh, that was a demonstration of sustainable building and mm. high energy efficiency performance had sourced some funding from KFW through their loan structure. So can we talk some numbers for a second mm. as well? Mm. Um, so that, that eye-watering $20 billion, uh, a year um, is available to an individual homeowner. So this, this is mostly for residential. It's available in commercial too, but it's fair to say that the biggest uptake has been in the residential space. Um, you can get a loan up to 150,000 euros just for the energy efficiency upgrade um, part of your project. So you might be doing a, a bigger retrofit of your home, um, but but the grant is specifically for the energy efficiency related work. So that's it. That's a that's a pretty generous um, loan amount there. And then depending on the level of ambition you go for uh, above the the minimum standard, which in Germany. We have the efficiency house uh, standard that's um, set uh, in the building code as well. The current minimum standard is efficiency house 75. But because of a long-running program or incentive program by KFW, uh, whereby you could access uh, this loan, and if you targeted energy efficiency house 55, you would be eligible for 45% of that loan amount to be given to you as a grant. So you're only paying back 55% of €150,000. Like, no wonder they were rolling out $20 billion a year. Um, but, 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 but this was in the new build market. So, this, so what, it, what it effectively did was create a, a, a proxy new minimum standard because why would you build to the old standard if you, if you had that amount of money on the table? I think I'm right in saying that 70% of new build was receiving funding from KFW to build to the highest standard. And I, I think it was acknowledged by policymakers here in Germany that that was slightly problematic, right? <laughs> Well, they'd done it for a decade. 12 years, I think. Yeah, so that was the other really surprising thing. I came to Germany expecting to hear about how they've been ratcheting up minimum standards in their building code every other year for the last 10 years Mm. because 
that's I guess that's the perception that you have um, from overseas that they've got really high performing uh, energy efficient buildings and you assume that most of that is driven by regulation through their building code and it's not the case they've, yeah. they've been effectively buying that performance um, in the resi space for the last decade I think there's a there's a lesson for a lot of us who really care about government policy in this space um, that because this is not the, the only example we've seen of that. So this program started at a point where building to the standard 55 was probably quite expensive. Um, and having a subsidy really helped the industry build to a standard that they weren't familiar with. Uh, and then at some point along the way, the industry does get familiar with that. The cost comes down. Mm. And at some point, the subsidy is no longer needed. And I think about Australia, and we actually had a couple of examples like that. We had you know, white certificate schemes subsidizing and lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really good example, a very similar story. At some point, all those schemes ended up subsidizing technologies that maybe were did no longer needed that, and a lot of them have been ramping that down. Um, same with solar feeding tariffs. When mm-hmm. they were introduced by all states, they really drove a lot of solar, which at that point was quite expensive. And then at some point, those subsidies were no longer needed, and if you run them for too long, then you, you end up spending a lot of uh, public money on something that might not be uh, needed at that point. And I think that's a, that's a lesson there, that subsidies are, in a large, in a grand scale, can be a very powerful tool to drive action, but also you need to be very mindful about you know, combining a subsidy with increases in regulation so you can do it at the optimal level. So this is the trick, right? And this is one of the big takers I've taken out of this, which is that... <laughs> Um, getting progress in terms of industry capability, in terms of literacy, in terms of those practices, but also those supply chains. Um, subsidies can be incredibly powerful, um, but you've, you've, you've got to have an off-ramp for the subsidies. Um, and so, the, and sometimes the transition will be, hey, the market's transformed, it's all LEDs, and, and you know, that's the cheapest and the most efficient option, and, and, every, and it, it, there's not a necessity to support uh, the rollout anymore. Sometimes the off-ramp will be, this is now the new minimum standard, and we're just going to set it to make sure there's no backsliding, and then we'll think about what the next iteration of ambition is in that context. So I think there is, given the task that we have before us, given how quickly we have to move, I think one of the takeouts for me is that there there might be a place for subsidies for industry to do that initial learning because there are transaction costs, right? Like that is not that is not something that's made up. Um, but you need to do it with a clear-eyed view to when a, a reasonable period will be to transition to something else. Yeah, I think and absolutely there's a case for doing it. It's been wildly successful. Mm. It's, uh, it's established a new standard of building across the country. Yep. So I think, yeah, our lesson is that we, we can front run changes to legislation with that, with that size of incentive, uh, but that, to your point, there should be an off-ramp or a scaling down um, of that subsidy yeah. over time. The, the other really important element of this was the longevity of that program. So it, you know, it was around for a decade, and so it didn't create this mad rush of people to like jump on this subsidy that's only going to be available for six months. You know, and and uh, that would have supply chain uh, mm, implications mm. here as well. It's not just in Australia that you can't find a tradie uh, to do work at your at your home. Uh, Germany's having the same issue um, across a, a range of things, especially when it comes to things like installing heat pumps um, to get off Russian gas. So if you, if you have a program that's around for a while, it allows people to plan and you don't 
you're not going to see some of those bottlenecks created uh, because that's a real risk and challenge with programs like that. Hey team, uh, I am very excited to have a co-host for this week's Ad Read, the Energy Efficiency Council Zone, Holly Taylor. Holly, great to have you with us. Very happy to be here for an Ad Read. So uh, Holly, uh, what exciting thing from the world of the Energy Efficiency Council would you like to tell our audience about today? Well, we are fast approaching the end of the financial year, which means for anybody that has purchased, installed and indeed is using new assets, particularly those that are saving energy, we would encourage you to use the Commonwealth Government's temporary full expensing measure, which is a tax depreciation incentive. This tax incentive is available until 30 June 2023, which means assets purchased, installed and ready for use by 30 June 2023 are eligible for a full instant asset write-off. Hey, Holly, uh, if only there was a guide that would uh, step businesses through how to build a business what? case. Yeah. Crazy talk. <laughs> is there a guide? There is. Who would have thought? Amazing. <laughs> that guide, the Tax Incentives Guide, is available at energybriefing.org.au forward slash tax dash incentives dash guide. This is a fabulous resource that Holly and the team have pulled together over the last 12 months. And as we work our way through uh, this energy apocalypse, uh, geez, I'm glad they did because because it, it could really help businesses to, to, to build the case for investments in, in big equipment upgrades that could really cut their gas and electricity use. It's really uh, important to note that the temporary full expensing tax incentive is available for assets of any value, and indeed it's available to 99% of Australian businesses. So uh, if you're sitting on the couch, get up. Go purchase something that's going to save you a lot of money, both in terms of energy efficiency savings, but also in terms of tax. The opportunity is nigh. Hey, you heard it here first, team. Uh, Holly Taylor says get off your ass and download that tax incentives guide. I didn't say get off your ass and download the tax incentives guide. Get off your ass, download the tax incentives (laughs) guide, and then go and invest in an energy upgrade and save your business bucket loads of money. Thanks, Holly. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Now, back to the show. All right, so I think we've we've, uh, interrogated kind of uh, the the, the funds that have been been applied, how they've been applied, how long they've been applied. Let's talk about the ecosystem that this program has developed because it's really exciting, right? Like the Efficiency House Standard, as you said, you know, there's a strong link between... The, the, the construction code and and what uh, and and how this program works and references it in terms of expectations for of efficiency pr- improvements in the uh, in, in retrofits. Um, uh, it, it's also a national system. There's consistency across the whole of Germany. Germany again, Germany is a is a federated uh, nation. It's it's got states in the same way that Australia has states, but everyone's come on board and said, yes, this is the this is the approach that we're taking. And it's also driven some clear expectations around skills, that ecosystems of skills that sit around it, because the KFW has, a, has a, a, a system of certified efficiency experts that are providing that concierge service I mentioned before. So, you know, this isn't sort of a... Uh, uh, an esoteric question for us in Australia, right? We're right on the cusp of kind of the next iteration of uh, work to land a disclosure framework in Australia. So what are the takeouts for you, Frankie, from what we've learned in Germany over the last week? I thought it was wonderful to see how seamlessly the system worked when you could shift from applying it to new builds to existing builds. So it's the same standard. So we're talking about Efficiency House, 
55, 40, yeah. you know, t- take your pick. Uh, it applies in the existing building uh, space because, and I think I'm getting this right, if you're changing 25% of the building fabric or facade, that triggers the requirements mm-hmm. of the code. So so we are talking about deeper retrofits yep. here. Uh, so that's if you're doing the, the whole of house kind of upgrade. It's the same system. So you've got, um, you're leveraging a pool of expertise that's also employed in the new build space mm-hmm. and, they, and they know what interventions need to be done to achieve that level of performance. Yep. So uh, they they told us at KFW that they're significantly retooling that program to focus on existing homes uh, over the next few years, which is where the focus mm. needs to be. But they also provide um, loans and subsidies for single measure interventions as well, which allows government to be incredibly targeted about things that it wants to see done. Mm. Very relevant at the moment because obviously there's an imperative to get Germany off of Russian gas. They're reliant uh, on that to Mm. a huge extent. Uh, Gas is the biggest energy consumption in buildings here in Germany, which is a little bit crazy to someone living in Australia. But, But there you have it. So, so they're going to be looking at using this program to massively incentivize heat pumps. And we happen to be here during the week that uh, the government announced a, a heat pump offensive where they're wanting to... <laughs> you picked up on it. that as well. I loved the source of the, the language there. They've put themselves on a war footing with Russian gas and, and they want to see the electrification ramp up to 500,000 heat pumps a year rolled out, I think, by 2025. Or 2024. Something. 2024 was the time frame. So, so the, the scheme allows you to target single measures that you can change over time. You can ramp up and down the incentives and you can use the same system for new build as existing. So it makes it, I think, a lot easier for the, for the ecosystem and the professionals to deliver on the services required, right? I think on the topic of scales and heat pump, given that you brought up the, the recent announcement by the German government, I feel like coming and looking at the German market on heat pumps is, is a little bit like looking at the future and the, the future lack of skills or shortage of skills that we're going to have in, in Australia very soon. Uh, we often think about, um, you know, if we have to electrify millions of homes in Australia, is something that is a task at an enormous scale, something that we've never done. And we are not electrifying many homes at this point in time. So it's not a lot of people with those skills. Germany's been doing this for a long time. There's lots of people with those skills and they just don't have enough professionals, even though they've trained thousands, tens of thousands of plumbers and electricians to be installers. They just don't have enough people to deal with that demand. And I, I think of that and I think of our market where we have very few plumbers and electricians trained to be able to do that kind of work. And we have... 5 million homes, potentially more, that need to be electrified with heat pumps. That challenge is enormous, and we're coming from a much, much lower base of training, but we have the same amount of time to achieve that goal. And I do think that that's something that's going to take a lot of focus effort, and we need to start. We need to start with that challenge, and we need to uh, tackle the issue about how do we train thousands of people to be able to do this so when we the demand for electrification grows to what we think is going to grow in a few years we actually have the ability to do that work on the ground and it's no surprise also to hear that the german government is talking very strongly about using incentives to do that as well mm-hmm. so they're they're also um it's the first time i've heard this before but they're also thinking about not yet implemented um throwing incentives at the at the installers 
So providing an incentive uh, for plumbers to not install gas systems mm-hmm. anymore mm-hmm. and for them to install heat pumps instead. Uh, so, it, you know, we, we probably need a heat pump offensive in Australia if, we're, if we've got a hope of achieving the level of scale that we need here. We're also missing some of the foundational elements we need in Australia. We heard a lot about the minimum standards and the, um, I guess, the, the sort of frameworks that Germany has in place to ensure that, you know, there's a certain level of quality of product yep. that's installed here and we, we don't have that system yet um, set up in Australia. Okay, so to close out the um, the kind of the disclosure topic because I think, you know, uh, there's a lot to say about heat pumps and that's almost a whole other theme of our trip is that whole electrification piece. I guess um, it's interesting to reflect on you know, what lessons we can take from, you know, what the KFW has achieved, which has been a de facto national system for disclosure. Frankie, your, your, your eyes are widening. I think you've got something to say. Well, we totally skipped over commercial buildings in this context. Yeah, sure. Give us a solid two minutes on commercial building well, status in Germany. But it's not so much what we can learn, it's what we can't learn. Sure. So, I uh, again, like we, we opened with the, yeah, we validated our thinking that we're better on commercial buildings the same is true for the disclosure regime here so Mm. we know that uh the european uh government mandates um the disclosure of energy performance certificates i did not have a very good understanding of what those involve uh, in terms of what you're disclosing to the market and and it's entirely unuseful. <laughs> They're a bit rubbish, aren't they? They're a bit crap. Um, so we're not going to bring back the idea of EPCs to Australia because no. we're very lucky to have neighbours and the CBD program, and that's working really well. I'm actually I'm actually really glad that you raised that because it, it underlined the fact that you can waste a lot of time doing rubbish disclosure, right? Um, and just disclosing for the sake of disclosing, but if it's actually it's not useful, actionable information, then you, you, you're just spinning your wheels effectively, and that and that's what's you know, it's largely what's occur- occurring here in Europe. And there's some nuance to that conversation. You know, in Brussels, the word we heard, Carlos, was flexibility. So nation states, yes, you have to do an energy performance certificate. Nation states have the flexibility to do it in the way uh, that they see fit. Um, we also learnt in Brussels that flexibility is a uh, another way of saying loophole. <laughs> but what that means is there's some places where they're done well. So we heard that Ireland is doing EPCs well, um, but in most places around uh, around uh, Europe, then, then they're kind of being done as a, effectively a token effort. But can we just talk about exactly what we mean when we talk about EPCs? And I'm interested in what Carlos took away from this as the Director of Neighbours, but um, like an EPC requires you to report on your primary energy factor and basically the energy that your building consumes but it's normalized by area but the way you calculate your primary energy factor that's applied to the energy consumption is different in every country and the way you measure area is different in every country and there is no form of uh, normalization uh, of those things by different building types so essentially you have a number that you get per building that is not comparable to anything else. So you have no idea whether your building is is performing well or performing poorly. You just have a number that doesn't mean much when you compare it to other buildings. That's right. And I think it's been a universal feedback that we've been getting, not just here in Germany, but also in Brussels at the European Union um, Commission. And 
to me, the takeaway from that is that the the approach of an EPC, which is looking at the physical attributes of your building, you know, how good are your windows? You have single, double glazing, triple glazing. How about the frame? Is it made out of wood or is it highly conductive? It's looking at the physical attributes of that building. And it's probably an appropriate way to do that in residential. But in commercial buildings, almost universally, everyone thinks it's actually not driving much. So it was designed to be a universal tool used by a lot of people. Um, even at that, it's kind of failing. Um, the, the European Union Commission told us that um, about 25% of the buildings that should have one in the non-residential space have one. So 25%, so 75% of the buildings that should have this just do not have that today. So at uni- universality, it's actually not quite doing its job. But even the ones that are using them, it's not really translating into energy savings. And I think that is the thing to remember that these mechanisms the success is not whether all buildings have one but whether they're actually meeting the intent of saving energy rapidly and saving emissions rapidly and if they're not doing that they're actually not doing being much of a contribution to what buildings can do to get us to net zero faster one of my favorite interactions this week uh was to meet uh david broussard who had worked in australia for amp capital for a while so he'd uh, he'd worked he'd lived in australia for a few years had experience at working with neighbors and bemoaned the fact to me that they have to deal with this complex system of epcs because he works for a a property company in Europe that has portfolios across many different countries. And he said, the the fact that I have to deal with a different regime in every country that's slightly different without any good explanation is just completely crazy. And he couldn't, and he was like, (laughs) can we please import neighbors, please? Even in Germany, there's actually two different ways of calculating an (laughs) EPC that you can choose from depending on which is going to give you a better result. And I, I find that... Even within one single country, there's, there's a lot of issues with EPCs. To me, like the, the takeaway, and to, to, to round this up, is that disclosure is a really powerful mechanism, but you need to align what you're measuring um, with the, the outcome that you want to get. And in Europe, this has been designed to get a lot of buildings with, give them a piece of paper, but, that, but it hasn't been designed to drive real energy savings. And I think that's something that a lot of people have recognized. Every time we show them, say, the energy savings from neighbors-rated buildings, which is the majority of the office market in Australia, everyone's kind of like, you know, opens their mouth and just wonder, how is that even possible? Like those yeah. kind of savings in, in 10 years are just unheard of in, in Europe. And I think that is, again, the, the value of these trips is that you learn the things that you need to do a lot better because you can see that we're not doing very well. Example, residential uh, but also the areas where we are doing really well and we should probably double down and go harder, which I think commercial is a great example of them. Yeah, so back then in entirely, I think that this, this trip has just underlined, you know, the, the world-leading status of neighbours and we need to expand disclosure to other commercial building types yesterday. Um, so that's that's number one. But number two, it's disclosure for its own sake is not worth doing. You've got to do it well. And I just want to uh, close out this conversation by talking about some of the characteristics of what good disclosure looks like based on what we've learned um, over the last little while. A key one for me is it's got to work Work for the finance sector, noting that, it, uh, you know, yes, ambition, yes, I think there's an appropriate role for government incentives, but I think there's a real opportunity to, to activate the finance sector around a disclosure regime. For, for mine, I don't know that enough attention has been played in the consultation process and what's been really good work by government, but 
not enough focus in how do we create a disclosure frame that's going to work for banks, you know, in terms of giving them the data they need, you know, streamlining a process, thinking about how you scale this up so they can have that conversation that retail banks right around Germany are having day in, day out, and they've got a very clear, they've got a baseline, they've got an expert externally they can work with, they've got a, a clear sense of, you know, what kind of preferential finance they can they can uh, they can offer, and importantly, there's not like a slightly different green bank offer that every bank's offering. It's like consistent across the country. So, the role of a disclosure framework, the role of a centralised government bank, and maybe the CFC can play this role at least at the beginning, kind of setting a standard and working with banks to develop up that that capability, but also the role of a, a finance offering. Uh, in establishing the ecosystem of experts that can support people on on the journey, um, because it's that concierge service, that that ability to support a homeowner owner through a journey, which is I think incredibly powerful in Germany. Um, and the other um, insight that we can take, perhaps from from neighbours, is that you know we obviously want to get to mandatory disclosure, but there's going to be a period where it's going to be voluntary. So, and we're, we're knocking the bogs out of the system. We're developing that ecosystem. And so how do we sort of create some momentum? It's, be, it's about creating finance products. It's create, creating uh, something that the banks will back in um, that will allow us to get through that initial ramp and then we can zoom up from there. Did, if I, what have I missed, Frankie? I'm sure I've missed something. No, you've pretty much covered it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I, but I think... All of us were sitting in those briefings with KFW thinking we needed a home energy rating scheme 10 years ago and the second best time is right now. So I just, on top of everything that you said, I just feel the urgency about it because the scale of the challenge is so significant. And if you're listening to German policymakers say, our $20 billion a year program is not doing enough for us <laughs> and we really need to scale things up, um, we, have a, we have such a long way to go. Um, but, but, you know, I think we, we know all the elements of what a successful scheme looks like uh, here. And, we, and importantly, we can learn from um, some of the mistakes that have been made here uh, to make sure that we calibrate our system and the role of incentives appropriately. Look, um, we're about halfway through our agenda. I can see this evolving into a special bumper double episode of First Fuel. <laughs> If you want to talk about heat pumps, um, then that's what we're that's what we're looking at. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put a pin in it there, Frankie. Thanks for being with me, Carlos. I'm really delighted that you're able to join me here in in Germany. Are we doing another one? Yeah, we're doing yes, another one. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> It's like, oh, is he just done with us now? We don't get to talk about heat pumps. <laughs> he just got hungry. <laughs> so that does wrap up this episode of First Fuel. Um, if you have comments, you can find us on Twitter. You'll find Frankie at at Frankie Muscovich. Carlos is at Carlos Flores Len, and I'm at Luke Menzel. And to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management, and demand response, you can find the Energy Efficiency Council at eec.org.au. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel in your podcast app of choice. And to learn more about the show, including upcoming live recordings, visit eec.org.au forward slash podcasts. Now it's goodbye from us here in Berlin, and we'll catch you very, very soon.